Welcome to Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. My name is Guy Dunlap from Guy's Woodshop, and I'm joined as always by, uh, what's this guy's name? <laughs> Hui Huen, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Hey, Guy. <laughs> hey, Hui. And Sean Walker, creator of Simple Cove. Hello, gentlemen. Sean. Hello. Uh, this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we also have a Patreon account. And right now we have one level and we are simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. So let's get right into it. We, you've got the first question. So this question is from Peter. He gives quite a few examples. And his question is, so it seems every time I install hinges, there is some issue with them, whether it's a lid not closing flush, a door that swings open, or spacing around a door not being consistent. I will qualify that I rarely, if ever, use quality hinges. I'm more likely to use Home Center or the cheaper Rockler Woodcraft options. Can you give any advice on having the best success with hinges, both by hand and using power tools, please? I consider myself a decent woodworker, but this continues to be an issue for me. So one of the uh, boxes that he talks that he showed on his uh, question pertained to a couple of them actually pertain to the doors not being able to close or stay closed, I should say, and him having to use a clasp. And if you look at a couple of these instances, the two that I'm looking at, these are these are doors or cabinets that are sort of either hung vertically or that are um, hung on the wall or, uh, excuse me, freestanding vertically. And all I can say is welcome, welcome to the club. <laughs> so uh, several things there. I mean, if the doors, it could be user error in, in sense of how uh, hinges are not cut evenly um, within the door itself. So it might lean in one direction or way in one direction. You know, for me, the best way to do it, I've done it with a router and a template that size specifically to the hinge itself. Um, and at least from what I can see, the hinges that he uses are, are kind of like leaf hinges, um, not, not, not overly complicated to install and not more than I can offer in terms of just using a template. Uh, the doors that I've used, I've always used either like some type of magnet, a clasp or a hook to keep the doors closed. Uh, for instance, I've got a tool cabinet on my wall and if I didn't have a magnet in there, um, the weight of it would possibly you know, could possibly swing it open, but you have to also consider it's hanging on the wall too. So who knows if the wall's flat or whatnot, but, um, any tips for Peter in this sense, or is it kind of like, Hey, welcome to the club sort of situation. Um, you know, it might look like it's going to fit perfectly when you lay it flat on your, you know, assembly table in front of a cabinet and then suddenly you install the hinge and you're like, well, it won't stay closed. I wonder why. Yeah, I mean, you build cabinets like that, like a wall hanging cabinet, and it's, you know, quote unquote, fine furniture, and you, you build a door for it, and it's inset. You can plan everything to the nth degree, and it's still going to not fit perfectly. That's <laughs> it's one of those things like that. You'll spend more time fitting the door than you do making the cabinet sometimes. Yeah. Um, and that's just life in the big city. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the, the way I normally do doors, I've, I've done it every, every way possible. Mm -hmm. And what I usually do is I usually, you know, just like a regular butt hinge and mm -hmm. I'll, I'll take it and I'll just fold it back on itself and place it on the door. Mm -hmm. So it hangs off of it. I'll knife mm -hmm. around it. Then I'll set the depth of a quarter inch bit in a small hand router. Mm-hmm. And I'll get really close to the line and I'll just route it out. Yeah. And then I go back in with the chisel and finish it. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much it. And that's, yeah. for me, that's the quickest way to do it without making jigs and templates and all this mm -hmm. other crap. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I just find it really fast and easy. 
plus I'm getting the right depth. And if your door is not closing, sometimes that's caused by you cut the mortises too deep yep, yep. for the leaves and the, the, the door is hitting itself. And no matter what you do, the door isn't going to close flat. So, Good point. I yeah. meant to say, I was trying to say that, but I did not articulate it as well as you did, guy. Um, Sean? Yeah, I'd like to sneak up on the depth um, because it's easy to remove more and having to shim it back out because you cut out too much is definitely a pain in the butt. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I like to do the, for cabinetry like that, I like to do it the same way, flip it over, slide it in place, the hinge, um, and, and mark it. And then, you know, use a, a, a trim router, just like Guy said. Um, and then you got to do the same thing. You got to remove the same amount of waste from the door. And the key is transferring those markings, you know, from the frame to the door and making sure that, you know, they're in the same place. Otherwise, the <coughs> positioning of the door is going to be off. You know, it's going to be too high, mm -hmm. too low, or the spacing is off and the hinges just won't go into the into the door or the frame depending on if which one is off. So, you know, I've removed the waste from the, um, from the case, get it cleaned up, pre-drill, put the screws in there, but then I will also put the door in place, shim it a 16th or whatever, all the way around, transfer my marks with the marking knife mm -hmm. and then remove the, uh, the door and then mark the size of the hinge on there again with the marking knife and then use the trim router to remove the waste. Transferring those marks is pretty important and mm -hmm. that you want those to be exactly in the same place on the door that they are in the frame. Um, and then the depth, like Guy said, you know, and I'm looking at some of the pictures and you talk about the inset doors required adding some felt pads to the bottom to keep closed. Right. You know, it's very difficult. And, and nine times out of 10, whenever you see cabinetry like this, I have a door, you're going to have some type of magnetic stop on there to hold the door in place because, you know, it's getting a, a door to just sit still in a frame just based off where you push it. I mean, it has to be dead, dead square, it has to be level, you know, I mean, if it's tilting at all, there's a thing called gravity that's going to pull on that door. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So if you have a draft and an air coming by it or something, it's going to push on the door. So most of the time what you see is on cabinetry like that, at least every cabinet that I've made is you're going to have a little magnetic catch that the door just butts up against and holds it in place. But, you know, obviously it's not going to be hard to open. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's just the name of the game that you're typically going to see. And, you know, like Guy said, adjusting these is also, you know, name of the game because that's why I like with the, um, the, the hinges that you get for like uh, kitchen cabinets, there's so many different ways to adjust them because, you know, you're going to need to adjust them. It's, it's difficult getting those dialed in just perfectly the first time, but, but the adjustability of those type of hinges are awesome. But yeah, obviously this yeah. is a different type of furniture. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. But, These are more like knife, knife hinges, leaf hinges. Yeah. So. The mortise hinges. Yeah. 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 So uh, you make a good point there, Sean, you're talking about, you know, gravity is going to play a huge part on that if it's not perfectly balanced. Right. But uh, I would say not only the door, but gravity plays an instance on any carcass, depending on how deep it is, is going to create maybe just a little sag or just a little bit of movement. And I think that pertains to one of the other issues that he talks about here is one door was flat before installing the hinges, then stood up on one corner. And I imagine it stood up one, on one corner when he mounted it to the wall. And this was a dartboard uh, case. Yeah. Well, that same instance happened to me as well. Uh, you know, I've got this big tool cabinet that's hanging off my wall. And when I close the door, like three, I've got one edge that actually hits the carcass, but the other edge just barely off of it. And it's like, well, that never did that before when I was in my other shop, but it's doing it now. And that, well, because the walls probably aren't level, you know, gravity plays a part in the fact that this is a relatively big size. And, and now I, I will defend in, in Peter's case, this is a small, you know, small cabinet box, but you know, those, those doors have weight to them too. And so there's, there's all sorts of things and the wood moves, you know, I mean, it yeah. just, yeah. it just does. Hanging and I'm looking at that. It's a hang, it's a dartboard cabinet with um, the dartboard inside of it and open the doors and you see that. But if that walls isn't flat and you're yep. laying that large box on there and it's, mm -hmm. you know, the bottom is, 
sticking out more than the top and you got that French cleat locking the top in place and the bottom's pushing. I mean, that very well could be a big issue of why it's not, you mm-hmm. know, cause those walls are, you know, they're not always flat. It could be bulging down there toward the bottom of the, of the case. It could be anything mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. I mean, anytime you build something like this, there's, there's just so much fine adjustment that has to be done, especially when you're talking inset doors or drawers. Mm-hmm. That's why most, you know, kitchen cabinets made in the United States here are all all have frames on them and overlay doors. Overlay, yep. Mm-hmm. Because it's really easy to cover up unsquare cabinets and doors that or the cabinets are square and the doors aren't square or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And you have an overlay, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's not as obvious as it is with a with a you know a a shadow line around the door. Yeah. Yeah. For a couple of these things it's, I where he's talking about using a class, so I think if you wanted to make it even more concealed, I think the answer is using some rare earth magnets on the corners or. or yeah, or I've done it a couple of times where I've actually embedded the magnets into the door and in the mm-hmm. cabinet side and then put a strip of wood over the top of them so you don't even see them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I've a 16th inch strip over the top. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the one is that, that you all are talking about, um, they, they're little shaker, shaker style clocks. Yeah. So if you're having to force them closed again, the, the hinges are probably too deep, but if it, they'll close, but not just stay closed. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough to, to get those to stay closed without another, another pro tip for everybody out there listening is don't buy cheap hinges. Good point. Yeah. You buy those crappy ones from the home store or from the Ace Hardware down the street, you're just asking for trouble. Yeah. I don't even trust the ones very much from Woodcraft or Rockware. Right, right. So so what would you suggest? Like what are the some of the ones that you've used that you I buy a lot from? of stuff from Lee Valley. Lee Valley. Yeah, I've yeah. bought stuff from Lee Valley. I've got And that. of course there's always Hart and Brass. Martin brass stuff is is pricey, but it's really good. I mean, you're if you're building a piece of what what again I'm going to say quote unquote fine furniture, you may have you know fifty, sixty, a hundred and fifty hours in this piece. Yeah, and you're going to put seven dollar hinges on it. <clears throat> no, I'm going to spend forty, fifty bucks on good hinges. Yep, and mm-hmm. put them on there. Mm-hmm. Um. Bruce yeah, Bruce. Yeah, Bruce is a good one. <clears throat> and those they have at like Rockler and Woodcraft. So if you need them now, you can get them there. I forgot about Bruce, so you're right. Mm-hmm. But those are good quality hinges. But don't don't get cheap on hinges. Yeah. No. They're they're not consistent on thickness on the on the leaves and they move. They're not yeah, you know, they're not they're there's horrible. no low tolerance. Yeah. And For sure. and they're just so thin. Well, there you go, Peter. I hope that helps. Uh, get right. good quality hinges. <laughs> All right. So I guess we're going to kick it over to Sean. That's yep. right. Okay. This is from Brian. Hi, guys. I wanted to start out by saying thank you for making my 30-minute drive to and from work some of the most enjoyable and informative time of my day. Oh. Appreciate that, Brian. Glad we could help. That's nice. I have a small one-car garage shop that has a slight twist from the norm. Though it is a garage, it is built over a basement and has a thick wooden floor. The basement space is unused and is connected to the basement of the house via a door. Do you guys think the atmospheric conditions in the basement would differ enough from the above garage space as to cause issues if I used it for lumber storage? My shop is well organized, but pretty tight. I'll have storage in the shop for smaller wood and I have a dedicated shelf system under my miter saw station to store all the parts for a single project minus large sheet goods. I want to use the basement to keep 200 to 300 board feet to allow it to acclimate to my shop. Side note, the basement space under the garage has a small garage door for a lawnmower storage. So air transfer will be similar to that of a garage, the garage above. And I know a guy will comment. So here's the answer. No, I don't park my car over the basement on the wooden floor. Thanks, guys, and keep up the great work, Brian. <laughs> so let's unpack this. He has a one-car garage, and mm-hmm. below that he has a basement that he would like to store 200 to 300 board feet to acclimate to the shop. Now, the question uh, that Brian has is, do you guys think the atmospheric conditions 
in the basement would differ enough from the above garage space. I think Brian, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think it would be that different, but I think that's going to be a question that you're going to have to answer for yourself. You're going to have to, you know, take a, 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 um, moisture little, reading. Yeah. Moisture meeting, moisture reading. Um, you're just going to have to go down there and, and, and see what, what's going on down there in the basement. Um, with those little doodads that you can buy at, at Amazon to tell you the, uh, the temperature and the humidity and all of that stuff. I would imagine it's going to be perhaps a little bit different than the, uh, than the shop. But the question is, is it going to be that much different? Um, you say that you keep enough, uh, lumber on hand in the garage in order to work on the current project that you're working on. I would personally would not would not hesitate to store 200 to 300 board feet in that garage in that basement if it were me unless it's damp and you know wet down there or if it floods then you know maybe there's a there's an issue with it but it sounds like to me if you keep your your uh, lawnmower and all that stuff down there that you don't have a water issue uh i would uh you know keep it off the ground uh i mm-hmm. we all do the vertical lumber rack mm-hmm. um uh, and then just get some readings down there and take a board, leave a board down there for a little bit, bring it up in the shop, you know, maybe a few weeks, a month or two later, see what the moisture difference is. If there's much at all, uh, you may have to let it acclimate to your garage from your basement for a little bit before you use it. But, you know, I would, I would not hesitate to stick the the lumber down there uh, to, to use as a storage because you got to think you're buying kiln dried lumber. You're buying it from a dealer that's going to have it in completely different conditions than your current shop. So it's, right. it, in my opinion, it's only going to be better than, than that because your basement's not going to be that much different. So I, I wouldn't hesitate to, uh, to use that as a place to store some lumber and just keep a, you know, keep an eye on the, uh, humidity levels, the moisture of the, of the wood, and then just get a reading and, and see what the difference is from a board that's been down there for six months versus a board that's been in your shop for right. six months and see what the difference mm-hmm. is and go from there. Yeah. Yeah, but if you don't want to wait six months, what do you do? Uh, Use a lumber in his garage. Yeah, no, I, I mean the. That's no, a really I'm not saying he needs to wait six months before he uses. I'm saying that oh, would I help know. him I'm get just, to determine just, the difference. I'm yeah. just teasing. I'm just teasing, Sean. Well, it's hard. Um, um, it's that's a really tough. It's for me, it's a tough question to answer because there's still a lot of specifics that I'd really need to know. Mainly is the biggest one is are both the basement and the garage, are they both climate controlled? Mm. Um, It sounds like they are, but it doesn't necessarily mean they are. Um, If they both are and they're both on the same system, they should both have pretty close to the same humidity levels. Yeah. What if they're not? Is there going to be much of a difference between the two, do you think? Yes, but it also depends on where he's from. So to give you an example, from where I originally came from in in Cleveland, certain houses that were close to the the lake, none of them had basins because of the groundwater. The further out you got, basements start becoming something in houses. that plays a big part. So it really depends on what you're, I mean, if you're like in the Pacific Northwest, it's humid as hell there. Or are you in Phoenix, Arizona? You know what I mean? Yeah. I just got to get some readings. You got, you got, like you said, Sean, you got to get some readings and, and make a determination if one is, has a higher relative humidity than the other. That's really the only way you can do it. Yeah. So, um, Good point about regionally where you are. So places like Florida, Alabama, and Eastern Texas, where I'm from Alabama, Northern Alabama, um, the, the chief culprit, you know, for why you're in a lot Alabama, of, whatever, whatever guy, uh, why there are, are missing basements, or I shouldn't say missing, but houses aren't built with basements, or as many houses here aren't built with basements because of the damp soil. Um, uh, we just have really, really damp soil. And, uh, yeah, it's just not really a good idea. Um, but, but yeah, I, I would, I, I agree with everything Sean said and guy with everything that you said. Uh, the only thing I could add is that you don't have to get a very, inex, uh, expensive, bar- is it a barometer? What is it that d- does it sounds atmosphere? pretty close 
to <laughs> so I would say that's probably right. Right? Okay. I yeah, just so. to get uh, you know, like a ten, fifteen dollar uh one that you can just stick into your garage. Or, yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, and in the basement, just to get a, a rough reading. And it doesn't have to be like 100% completely accurate. What what you're looking for is a differential. What's the difference between yeah. one and the other? Not an exact number. Right? Yeah, you don't need an expensive one, just as long as you're using the same one. Because it's just yeah. going to give you a baseline number. It doesn't matter if it's 50 or 20 or 8,000. doesn't really matter. Which, yeah. which it's like what you said, where you're looking for a differential between the two. Yeah. So that's about all I can add to that. All so right. I think that's well, that's it. We'll pass it on. I will pick up the next question. And this is from Monty. It says, thanks for the great podcast. I've been catching up on all of them recently, not quite all the way through. Haven't heard Guy use specificity for a while. So if you could see to that, I'd appreciate it. Well, I will give it my best to try to add specificity in this podcast at some point in time. So Monty's question is, <laughs> this question is about pocket hole joints and the need for glue or not. Given that pocket hole joints most commonly involve butt joints, for example, short grain to long grain, is it really worth adding glue to the mix? Part of me wonders whether with plywood having alternating grain direction to the layers might offset that a little. I realize that it probably doesn't hurt anything in the long run to add glue, but it seems like it just makes everything more slippery and difficult to align. What are your thoughts on this? Thanks and keep up the great work, Monty. So pocket joints. If you're in a, a, a short grain, actually an end grain to a long grain situation, that's mostly when you're dealing with hardwoods. I would never use pocket joints on hardwood unless it's like for a face frame for a cabinet mm. where you've got end grain to long grain, in which case I do smear a little glue on there, but not much. And I don't find it because I clamp it down and I have a, a system that I use to do it. And I use a lot. Of, I do a crap ton of pocket hole joints at work. But for cabinets, sometimes I put glue on them. Sometimes I don't. Yeah. If that's a, if that's a good answer. Um, if you've got plywood, there is no such thing as end grain or long grain on plywood edges. Right. It's a combination of the two. So if you've got, you're using something like a Columbia Forest products from the big box store or even from a, a lumber yard, they're typically, uh, I think, seven layers. And then you can get some, you know, higher quality plywood like a Garnica or something like that that may have like nine layers. Then you got Baltic Birch, which has, you know, nine to ten layers also. Yeah. Um, and you're going to have more long grain and more long grain in that type of plywood. But I, pocket holes are pretty damn strong to begin with. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're, it's not as strong as a Morrison tenon, but they're, they're pretty strong. Um, and putting glue on it really does help quite a bit. Yeah. If you've got the time and it's just not like you're, you're, <clears throat> building cabinets commercially. Yeah. I'd put glue on it. Yeah. I'd put glue on it. I put, I just put a little dab, you know, I'm not going crazy with it because you know, there's just no need for squeeze out, but he's saying everything more slippery and difficult to align, you know, a little rub joint, a little friction with that glue, just to allow it tack up will help a little bit. That's what yeah, I do. Yeah. But when you drive in a pocket screw, it mm -hmm. tends to move the pieces around quite a bit. Yeah, what, yeah. I, what, what I do, my Clamps. system, we don't have a, a face frame clamp at work. Mm -hmm. So what we'll do, what I do anyways, is I put it on my work surface. I just take a little quarter sheet of sandpaper, like mm -hmm. 80 grit sandpaper. And I put the joint on top of that and I clamp it down with the Craig clamp. Yeah. It doesn't go anywhere. Smart, yeah. Yeah. And when we're driving into the cabinet sides... The way we build cabinets is, you know, we'll, we'll put the pocket screws in there and everything. But when we're assembling it, 
Mm-hmm. All we do is stand it up on edge, smear a little bit of glue, and we drive a couple crown nail uh, crown staples in. Yep. And then we come back with the screws afterwards. And are you guys using pocket holes? Uh, for some of the pieces, yes. Or going straight in from the side if it's a concealed. If it's coming, if it's coming straight, from, we're just going to go straight in from the side. Yeah. yeah and sometimes we do pocket holes where we can't go straight in from the side. Of course. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So there you go. Sean, are you a suspenders and belt kind of guy or what? I don't have much experience with pocket holes and, you know, other than a few little projects that I made. I just, you know, um, and I didn't use glue on those, but it was, again, it was just for like casework. Um, so yeah, I don't have much to add to this. I don't have much experience with pocket holes. I don't, I don't use them if nowadays, if I need to do something quick and dirty, I just use the domino but back in, back in the old day, <laughs> I would just do mortise and tenon, uh, you know, using the router and, and the dado stack and, mm. and, but I don't, I don't build cabinetry. So, I mean, I would understand the, the, the question. It's one of those things, if you can get this system down, to where they won't move then i would obviously would use glue because you know it's only going to help not hurt yeah yeah, yeah. i mean you can use biscuits along with the pocket screws too and that'll help align things or you can use dominoes i mean there's a, there's eight thousand different ways to make cabinets and none of them are incorrect right um right. so it just really depends on how quickly you're trying to get them done and but to be honest with you, you know, just using pocket holes or just screws or whatever to put cabinets together, it's fine. Yeah. and But add glue to it because it does make a difference. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So it's back to Hui. This question is from Jim. He says, Guy, Hui, and Sean, I've been binge listening to your podcast for the last several weeks, and I'm loving it. I would call that torture, but okay. <laughs> I love the format, especially compared the part to the- where you're on. Yes, of course. Especially compared to the other podcasts out there. I've learned a lot from listening to you as a new woodworker. I finally found and went to a hardwood dealer near me and bought some beautiful five-quarter and eight-quarter cherry. I put it on my lumber rack to acclimate to my shop. Uh, they are on a Bora horizontal rack. Do you recommend stickering them to allow airflow all around, or should I just stack one on top of the other? I look forward to your next show, and hopefully I make it. Um, so when I first set up my shop in my old house, I had a horizontal rack. It was just shop-made horizontal rack out of 2 by 4 and plywood, you know, just that like L-bracket kind of thing going on. Uh, right now, and I think all of us uh, use vertical lumber storage. But when I when I had the horizontal rack, um, I was storing lumber up there, and I did have it stickered. And then I had more lumber than I could have stickered, and then I stopped stickering them, and I didn't really see a difference. Um, where I th- where I believe you're going to see more of a difference is in your milling process. So. Um, maybe after doing an initial milling or whatnot, allowing it, you know, I think all of us, or at least Guy and I, I'm not sure about Sean. I think you do this, Sean, but just holding, uh, laying the boards on edge as opposed to flat, uh, and then you don't have to sticker them. Uh, I do do that um, to allow the boards with the new grain being exposed to sort of acclimate to the shop. But when I had horizontal storage, um, I did sticker them thinking that that's what you're supposed to do. And maybe you do. Maybe you are supposed to do it. But I didn't after I ran out of room um, because the stickers take up space, vertical space. So I just I just got rid of them and I just laid my boards flat and I, I did not notice anything. And plus, they're rough boards. So, you know, even if there's a little bit of wood movement, I mean, you're going to be milling it anyway. So. What are your thoughts on that, Sean? I think you're about to say something. Yeah, I'm just thinking. Um, you know, if <laughs> if you get the wood that's already kiln dried, the main yeah. thing that you're trying to do is get it to acclimate to your shop. And, you know, unless your shop is like drastically different than, you know, where you got the lumber, eh, you know, maybe stickering it. I've never had a horizontal lumber rack since I started woodworking. All of 
10 years ago, it's, I've always had a vertical lumber rack. So I never had to, you know, never worried about this, at least vertically. I haven't, I mean, my lumber rack has been stacked before where there's no room and I don't sticker it that way. So, you know, I never thought about that, but, um, you know, all the, all of the books that you read will say to sticker them. I don't know if that applies to, you know, I would imagine it applies to kiln dried, but it's tough. You know, I, I don't want to steer you the wrong way and say no. And then it mess up, you know, mess up a pile of lumber, but I wouldn't do it myself. You know, I'm buying kiln dried lumber. My shop is, you know, not drastically <clears throat> different. You know, I, I don't, the humidity isn't off the charts in my shop. Yeah. Um, and I don't, and I'm going to let it sit for a few weeks before I start to use it. And then when I start to use it, you know, pull it off, cut it up and go to town on it. You know, I don't know. I'm not read or experienced. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Anyone not stickering and having issues. I know vertically I've had, like I was saying, the lumber stacked in there to where there was no room at all between the boards and never had an issue. Right. So, eh, 50, 50, it's your call, Jim. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if, if I've had, vertical starts for probably around seven or eight years now and I, but i've had a lot of you know wood stored horizontally for for many years um i i wouldn't worry about it it's when you take it off and you start milling it that's when it's going to have the most traumatic effect mm. on the wood and that's when it's going to lose most of its moisture um so you can either you know if i'm doing like most of the time, if I'm taking lumber and I'm putting it down to like three quarters of an inch plus, I'm just putting it outside, like we said. Yeah. However, if I'm getting like, like when I make drawers, I usually order like six quarter material mm-hmm. and I resaw it and then plane it down to half inch. In that case, I actually sticker it and I put weights on top of it to keep it flat, mm. which helps quite a bit. And I let it sit there for a week. That's usually my process for that. Right. My I guess, do the same thing. I do the same thing at work. Yeah. My guess is that sit there for a couple of days. My guess is that with the six quarter material and then resawing it um, to get down to half inch, there's just not as much margin for error in terms of milling. Right. So yeah, that's, but that's I mean, even, but even then I, I, well, I guess what I'm saying is when you get it that thin, it's gonna uh, tend. It's gonna tend to uh, bow and cup over its width, not its length. Mm. So, um, and you know what I'm talking about. You know, sometimes wood just warps the minute you cut it. Oh yep. yeah. Oh yeah. So, yeah. Um, but like yeah. I said, most of the most of the dramatic moisture loss is going to be after you start milling it. So I would just put it on the rack. I would not worry about stickering it unless it's air dried. If it's air dried, yeah, I'd put stickers under it. Mm. Yeah. But if it's, you're going to say something, Sean? No, I was going to say, you're you're right. I, I was going to say that, but I forgot. So I'm glad you brought that up about it being, you know, wet yeah. lumber. So if you get, if you get kiln dried lumber, I, I wouldn't worry about it at all. I would just stack it there and. Take it off as you need it, and after you mill it, do the initial mill and get it to within a quarter or an eighth of an inch where it's going to be final. Let it sit for a couple of days, and then what I'll, I'll, I what I usually do is I'll get it to like a quarter inch or an eighth inch, typically about an eighth inch where it's going to be finished with or thickness, and then I'll just let it sit there, mm-hmm. and I won't pull it off the the you know from its standing on its edge until I'm ready to make parts from it. Then I pull it off and I mill it real, you know, run it through the, the, the joiner or through the planer once or twice real quick. I get it down to thickness. Boom. I'm ready to go. You know, we mentioned this before too. And uh, Jim, I believe it's Jim. Yeah. Jim, uh, you're going to, you're going to figure out fairly quickly what kind of lumber the hardwood dealer that you're going to is, is producing and, and selling to you. Um, you're going to be able to tell real quick. Well, I shouldn't say real quick. You're going to them over time. You're going to figure it out, right? That, uh, that either this, this dealer 
produces or is selling, you know, good quality lumber that's been properly kiln dried or properly dried, doesn't have to necessarily be kiln dried, but properly dried, in which case, you know, there's not going to be very much acclimation that you have to do to your shop, although it's still a good idea. Um, you're going to figure that out. We've talked about that, you know, you ask questions, ask about their processes and, and, and you're going to learn, you're going to learn. Yeah. So. I, I always, when I purchase, you know, lumber off of places like Craigslist and it's, mm -hmm. you're mm -hmm. unsure of <laughs> how dry yep. it is. I mean, I keep an extra eye on that lumber and definitely, you know, keep it on it and not use that for, for a while just to let it acclimate. And then maybe if I'm having, you know, second guesses, I may lay it on the floor and sticker it, but you know, I just yeah. let it sit for, for a little bit before I use it. I, I absolutely have bought wet lumber on Craigslist before. And, uh, you know, it was a couple of years before I even started using any of it, but yeah. that was stickered and whatnot. And you don't want to stack that for sure. But, um, if you're going to stack it, sticker it and that, and that stuff was stickered and man, it just, it took up a lot of space took up a lot of space yeah, yeah and just real quick if people don't know what we're talking about by stickering wood what we're talking about is you, you lay a piece of wood flat then you'll take some uh like three quarter inch strips three quarter by three quarter inch strips of hardwood or plywood and you'll set it down you know you've got an eight foot board you might put four of these strips going across its width then you put mm -hmm. the other board on top of it it just allows air to flow all the way around the board yep. for even moisture evaporation stuff thingy. Yeah. 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 For my stickers, I guess that's what you call them. I use, uh, I cut up eight quarter bobinga for mine. <laughs> Only oh. the best. Only the best. Only yeah. the best for my poodle. Yeah. <laughs> rolling in the, rolling in the IT dough. Yeah. IT dough. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. Hope that helps. Sean, you got the next one, buddy. All right. This is from Ken. I like this one. Hey, guys. Love the podcast. You guys all have joiners and planers with carbide cutter heads. What kind of finish are you getting with these? Is scraping or sanding still needed for a final finish, or are your parts ready for finish? Are these cutter heads all they're cracked up to be? Ken. Well, Ken, I have the special cutter head in my jet combo machine that I go straight from that to uh, my final coat of finish without any sanding. <laughs> and no, I'm just playing. No, they're <laughs> although they're nice, uh, you still have to sand just like you would with, you know, traditional heads with the long blades. Uh, the thing that you're going to get mainly out of using these uh, carbide cutter heads um, are, you know, less tear out, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, you're still going to have to sand, unfortunately. You're going to have to scrape potentially. And I still get tear out with my carbide head. Um, I was using some bird's eye maple the other day and you just look at it and you got tear out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I used the planer joiner, got it pretty close. And then I ran it through the drum sander to remove the little bit of tear out that I had. But although they are nice and they're, you know, heck of a lot easier to dial in and, or not, there's no dialing in, you know, you just rotate the cutter head. You got four sharp sides. Um, you don't have to mess with any knives and all of that stuff. You do still have the, uh, pretty much the, the same surface on the, uh, on the board after running it through than you would traditional blades. Actually Just, with straight knives, you get a better finish if they're sharp. Yeah. Well, there you go. Much better finish. I don't know about much better. It's much better. Yeah, but I'd go. That's about, much better. I'd go 30%. I wouldn't go much. Oh, I'd go at least 32. Well, then we're going to have an issue. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are but there yeah you're it. still gonna have to do all the all the fine sanding you're just gonna have a better time with running figured lumber through there in other words less tear out but you guys have anything to add to this for for ken uh no you're gonna sand <laughs> yeah I sand. yeah I, I mean the 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 advantages to the segmented cutters is exactly what sean said it's a matter of sharpening and maintenance. That's mm -hmm. it. Doesn't give you a better finish. Uh, they're a little bit quieter mm -hmm. than a than a straight blade. And like I said before, you're actually you get a better finish off of straight blades. But it also is much more forgiving when it comes to grain direction on boards. If I'm 
not working with figured hardwoods, you know, like a bird's eye maple or something like that, but just like regular maple. Before, I would always worry about which way the board's going so I wouldn't get tear out on it, like on a piece of soft maple or something like that. Right. With a segmented cutter, and I just throw it in there. I don't look at that crap anymore at all. I just don't care. I just push it through. If it's got figure on it, I still don't look at it that hard, but I'll, I'll take a little bit of water and I'll the spray bottle and I'll wet the surface of it and then put it through. Uh, that, that helps, that helps, qu- that helps yeah. quite a bit with tear out on figured, figured woods. Yeah. But other than that, you're not going to get a better finish. You're not going to eliminate tear out completely. It's going to help, nope. but you're going to have it. And yep. before and we, if you got bird's eye maple, don't look at it. No, <laughs> you can probably peek, but don't look at it. <laughs> um, but I, I did want to mention that. Justin De Palma. I mean, I remember listening to one of his podcast episodes with Guy and Against the Grain folks. He mentioned that he likes edge jointing better on long long blades instead of the carbide head. Yeah, and and I'd agree with him. It does give a better. It gives you a better joint. Huh. Yeah. So I have two joiners and planers in my shop, two twelve inches, just one <laughs> for joining. No, but uh, well, I th- I, th- I actually think Justin does. Doesn't he have like yeah. an eight inch and like a Am I right on that? He has multiple joiners, I think. I didn't, yeah, I think. I didn't think he did. Well, maybe you got rid of him. Or maybe I'm thinking of somebody. There's too many people on Instagram. I could be getting mixed up with anybody. Yeah. I will say one thing. I bought my joiner planer, my hammer, back in tw- uh, 2018, March of 2018. a hammer or a joiner planer? <laughs> Whatever. Hammer is a brand. Guy, my goodness. <laughs> You're just full of dad jokes today, aren't you? Um <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, I bought mine in March of 2018, or at least it arrived April of 2018, and I have yet to rotate any of the knives. Yeah, yeah they, they last for a long time. They last for a really long time. Yeah. I have, I'm right there with you, but my problem is, is I've lost a couple of those uh, inserts, so I don't. There's no rotating to them. Oh, what happened? I don't know. I mean, it, the the machine was. <laughs> <laughs> got me the machine was shipped with one chipped oh i know what happened i'm an idiot on one of them and i tried to rotate it and tighten it down too much and okay. yeah it shattered uh, yeah that was my fault i'm, yeah, I'm pretty solid bad with carbide that. they're brittle yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm bad with that stuff man you know saw stop blades and brakes and <laughs> i don't even know why i should the hobby is breaking tools but the other one i don't know what happened to it i, huh. I probably hit something hard but yeah, yeah. I will say also that they do draw more power. Yes. Mm. So there's that too. I know it has nothing to do with sanding, but just thought I'd let no. you know. <laughs> oh, if I can add one more thing. Of course. I, I forgot about this. Nope. We're um, done. Y- y- oh, great. You, you've got to consider whatever type of roller head you have on it, right? So I think I, I've got a metal serrated roller head. I think. Oh, yeah. Th- does does your do your joiners, uh, yeah. planers? Have, yeah. On the in feed, but the out feed's rubber. Right. Right. I occasionally, depending on what kind of wood I'm using, will actually get, you know, those um, and depending on how much material I'm taking off, uh, we'll get small indentations from uh, the roller head. Um, So, you know, you got to take that out sanding. Right. So anyway, just keep that in mind. Yep. All right. I think I've got the last question. Back to you, man. And this one's from Monty. Didn't I did the last question from Monty? Monty. Yeah. yeah. Another one from Monty? Back to back. He's got three questions here in a row. We're going to see sponsored by Monty on Guy's Instagram. Yeah. Because it's a, there's (laughs) the first, he's got three questions here all back to back. Yeah. But you know what? Is it the same Monty? I I think so. I mean, there aren't a lot of Montys that, you know, that are, I I don't think there are a lot of Montys listening to our podcast. Well, Monty, Monty, you are the few, you win the prize for the first person ever get two questions answered by the same host, the same host. Yeah. But he's sending in questions, which, which we like, which we appreciate. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I'm not complaining, Monty. Um, All right. So his, (laughs) Monty's next question is, I'm interested in what you'd recommend for beginner-friendly spray finish setup for occasional use on projects 
ranging from small boxes on up to possibly cabinets. If it's even feasible for one to set up to cover that kind of range, if not, what would you recommend for one versus the other? Thanks and keep up the great work, Monty. Well, Monty, I do have an answer for you on this. I would recommend if you want, if you don't have a big budget, get the Erlux. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's a two-stage sprayer. It'll actually spray um, most water-based finishes without thinning it. It's not going to spray like latex or acrylic paint, right? But it does a really good job of shellac. Does a fantastic job of shellac, and it will spray most water-based, waterborne, water-based, whatever you want to call it, uh, finishes. I had one for a couple of years. It was the 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 first finishing gun, a, a finishing setup I had, yeah. And um, I had really good results with it, you know, because I shot a lot of shellac with it. Shot a lot of shellac. Mm-hmm. And it worked just wonderfully. Yeah. Um, the only thing I didn't like about it was the gun is always letting out pressure. Oh, is a bleeder gun? It's a bleeder gun. Is that yeah. what they call it? Yeah. Yeah. Ble- it's a, it bleeds it's through a, the it's nozzle. A bleeder. Yeah. yeah, it's a bleeder gun. Yeah. So... It's not a big deal. It really didn't bother me that much. <laughs> but, um, you know, it worked really well. And it's, I think they're about like $300. Uh, that sounds about right. I think that's what they are. Yeah. And you get a gun and you get some tips with it. And it's it's a really good system for the money. Yeah. So what what do you think, Sean? I would agree. And actually, before I was gifted one of those little oh, that's right. Fuji We're, sprayers. Yeah. yeah. I was looking at the the uh, Erlex system, but, you know, never pulled the trigger because I'm, you know, spraying, it just seems a little intimidating to get started with until you just get something to get started with it. But yeah, I think that is a, uh, I think that's a good, a good system. It just depends on, you know, Monty's budget, you know. Beginner friendly, you could get any system could be beginner friendly. Well, within reason, you know, the Fuji mm-hmm. systems, you could get a, a beefy one like, like you and we have, it's still just going to be you know, beginner friendly. Yeah. 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 I it, mean, we, we and I have pretty expensive ones and it's not any harder to use than the, than the less expensive one. Correct. Yep. 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 Just I do. I do know what you're talking about. The bleeder gun versus I, I do like it better when it's not uh, bleeding venting out of the front of the nozzle. Sorry. What'd you say? When it's not bleeding. Yeah. Or venting out. I say venting. Of course you do. Uh, <laughs> venting. Uh, bleeding. It's just so, so cruel. and. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, <laughs> as far as like a, a gun, once you have a spray gun, mm-hmm. see, there's the thing. It's like for me, even on small boxes and stuff, mm-hmm. it's nothing for me to just mix up some, some shellac, throw it in my gun, and my system is just sitting there. It only takes me five minutes to set up. Yeah. It's next and to your just, assembly. Is it next to your assembly table? It's Sorry. in the assembly table. It's on one That's of the pull-out shelves. Mm-hmm. So I just pull it out, hook the hose up to it, hook the gun up to it, throw some shellac in there, and psh- I'm ready to go and I'm spraying yeah. um, five, maybe 10 minutes tops. And it only takes a couple minutes to clean. It's not that big of a deal. Um, but the, the, the Erlex can, you can do the same thing with that, that you can do with a, you know, a $1,500 system. Right. If you're right. using like shellac and, and water, water-based finishes. Yeah. Sounds like that's that's mostly what he would be doing. Uh, yeah, that's in, what it in his sounds case, boxes like. up to possibly mm-hmm. cabinets. So my first system actually was a. Gosh, it was an Apollo eight hundred. Um, I bought it used from a guy that was refinishing porcelain tubs, huh. and I can't remember if the eight hundred was a five stage or a three stage. 
either way, it was more than capable of do, doing what I needed it to do. And I think I spent $150 for it. It, it was an old system. It's a 20 year old system. But uh, the only thing, the big difference between the, the old ones and the new ones, technology hasn't really changed, is the old one was loud. It was really loud. Um, it, it was louder than like a shop vac. Um, it Dang. Was, it, it, really? Yeah. That's pretty loud. Yeah, it was, it was really loud. Um, whereas like the new ones are not nearly as loud. You have a Graco, right, guy? Uh-huh. How, how, how loud is that? Is it is not too bad, right? Uh, it's not too bad. I mean, but uh, if I've got like the TV going or the stereo going, I can't hear it. Oh, okay. I can't. I mean, it drowns out the TV, it drowns out everything else in the shop. Yeah. It's not super loud, but you know, it's like a really loud vacuum cleaner. Yeah. Yeah. This, the old one I had was very, very loud, but anyway, so that, that was the first one that I had. I mean, you might try to find one used. You possibly could, but the the technology is really no different. It's it they call it a turbine because all it is is just a fan. Um, and if it's a three stage or a two stage or a five stage, it's just the number of fans that it's using, as I recall. So that's all I got. You got anything else, Sean? No. So I think that's going to do it for the show. And we would like to thank everyone who left us a five star review on iTunes. It really does help us out in the search rankings, and of course. We truly appreciate the support and feedback. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions you would like answered, like Monty, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And I can always be found on all social media as Guy's Woodshop. And where can people find you, Sean? On Instagram at Simple Cove and simplecove.com. All right. We? AlabamaWoodworker.com and all the links to my social media are there. All right. Well, I guess that will do it. And um, we'll talk to you guys in a couple of weeks. Talk to you in a couple. See ya. See ya.